Thanks, guys, and good morning, everybody. I always like when my guts shake a bit on a Sunday. It's a good, it's a good Sunday. What? Did they? I do. And the ears bleed, too. That's, that's another good. Not quite. <clears throat> um, <laughs> that's the threshold. <clears throat> All right. Well, good morning, guys. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to our church again, like Chris said earlier. Glad you guys are with us today. And uh, we are going to jump right in to our series, back into our series, on the Song of Solomon, which is one of the books of the Old Testament, the wisdom literature books, uh, genre-wise, which is uh, Old Testament poetry. And so it's uh, taken a lot of effort in a lot of ways. I guess you could probably say this about any book or genre or part of the Bible. It takes some work to ask the big question, what does this mean for our lives? What does this mean for us today as a, as a 21st century Christian in a different part of the world and a lot of this happened in and so forth? And we have to ask those bigger questions, maybe even especially though here, uh, with a genre like, uh, like this, which is very enigmatic and uh, difficult to access at times. So we'll do the hard, heavy lifting work of uh, interpretation here in just a, a few minutes. But Solomon wrote this book, King, King Solomon of the Old Testament, the son of David, who um, lived around 960 BC. One of the uh, different wisdom books of the Old Testament he wrote. He also wrote Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and some of the Psalms. So uh, one of the uh, bigger, you could say, uh, authors of the Old Testament in the sense of the amount of books that he wrote, but king of Israel, and this is one of them. And it's a love story between a man and a woman, himself and his bride. And so when the man is mentioned, uh, it's, think of King Solomon, again, son of David, and uh, in terms of his story, we know some of his story from the narrative books of the Old Testament, but not all of it. Uh, This is kind of a complimentary uh, companion piece, you could say, to some of the narratives we find elsewhere in the uh, books of First uh, and Second Kings. But regardless, uh, he's the author, and it's basically just that. So at least if you have this in your mind, if you have this idea that, okay, this is at least, a, we know this is a love story between a man and a woman. I got that at least. Then we can kind of piece together some of the other parts to it as we uh, go along. But uh, today we're in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And remember, the two have been talking, basically pictured as more of a love dialogue than a love story, if that helps too, because this, there, it's not, you know, spoken by a, a third party so much as it's, it is the woman and the man talking to each other about each other, about the relationship, about each other's bodies, about each other's character, and things like that. And it's uh, written down kind of, uh, you know, back and forth. The woman speaks the most, really. It's, she's the main character, you could say, but uh, the man is, uh, in a lot of ways, um, the main character as well. He speaks quite a bit. He's quoted at least a lot by, by her. Uh, but today's special because uh, it's, a, it's the first of two dream sequences. This is uh, the special angle today, seeking, not finding, and then finding. But these themes come up in a dream. So she falls asleep and she dreams. She's still engaged uh, to this man. And uh, the wedding's going to happen next week. And so this is a dream of anticipation. It's a dream of wanting consummation, re- ready to have sex and to be close to this man emotionally. Uh, as well, and just to be where he is. One of the beautiful things about marriage is, uh, I remember Aleth and I early on is, uh, in our marriage realized, this is kind of a dust statement, but we realized we don't have to like say goodnight to each other anymore. We can just stay, which is really nice, you know? We hated doing that. We'd say as late as we possibly could, and then one of us would have to go home uh, to our respective apartments. We hated that. And like, we don't have to do that anymore. We just go to bed. This is awesome. So um, we, uh, we're seeing, that, we're seeing the, the principle here of separation and uh, unification take place. Uh, kind of, this is engagement time, so wanting uh, no more separation and getting that. And so this is going to really come to a head next week, and it's going to spill over into the next uh, several chapters that round off the book. There's eight chapters of the book. We'll get to that weeks from now. But uh, this is a dream, so a dream of anticipation, a dream of wanting to be where he is, but just not having that immediately, but then finding him, and we'll come to some of that in just a second. So really, today's task is to interpret dreams, which the Bible does. It's, it's cool because you, you see this theme come up quite a bit in the Bible where back in Genesis and the book of Daniel, two books of the Old Testament, uh, people have dreams. God speaks through dreams and there's a dream interpreter and God helps interpret or helps that person interpret the dream and it, and it, and it just spills forth theology, uh, notes about himself and, and content about himself, promises about himself, characteristics about himself and salvation and all of this. And so we're going to do that today. But it's, you know, talk about a layered, it's already poetry. <clears throat> it's already Old Testament poetry. Now we're talking about a dream that's embedded in Old Testament poetry. It's like kind of like two layers. I was thinking it's kind of like Inception. There's two layers of dreams here. I've seen that movie. 
Whereas it's got to go really deep to access the, the truth here. So we're going to, but this is biblical too. So we know God is certainly speaking through it directly to us. And we have the help <clears throat> of the rest of the scriptures here as well. So we'll uh, be able to access a little bit more clearly, but it's going to take some heavy lifting. Uh, also remember here too, there, there's a human and divine side to this. So if you're brand new, uh, this is a, a love story. It's a, little, it's a love poem between a man and a woman. When God talks about marriage on this level, he's ultimately talking about himself loving lost people. And when God says marriage to the world, he says, I am like a really good husband who dies for and loves and woos to himself his bride. And, and his, his church, his people are that bride. This is a very pronounced theme elsewhere in the Bible. I'm not making this up. This is something that complements what we're seeing here in the Song of Solomon that we have to read in or we miss what God is really trying to do. Uh, with, with this book. So have that in mind too. When we read, think of yourself as the woman, uh, and especially if you're a Christian, but even if you're not yet, think of yourself as this type of pursued woman, uh, this type of individual who's eventually reunited with this man who is a picture of God and more particularly uh, Jesus Christ. So have that in mind too, and we'll talk about that side specifically today with some principles for human relationships and marriage as well as we have been throughout this, this series. All right, with that said, Song 3, 1 to 5. If you want to turn your Bibles, that'd be great, but this will be on screen here as well. Verse 1. On my bed by night, this is the woman speaking, I, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city in the streets and the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him into my mother's house and into the chambers of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. All right, so as uh, Jesse Splant, I think, said a few weeks ago when he preached, pretty much preaches itself, right? Hardly have to say anything about that one. Let's just go home. Uh, no, not quite. All right, little uh, context here, though, to this. Remember that thematically, or that there is a, a, a chronology here to the book. There's engagement and weddings next week and then married life after that. This is the last of the engagement preparation anticipation sections of the book, again, in, for, in the form of a dream, her dream. Uh, thematically, similarly, similarly to last week, there's this, uh, there's this picture of separation and reunification. Uh, but the dream this week is she's wanting him but can't find him. This is, this is important. Can't find him in the city, but then finds him finally as she keeps looking. So have that theme in mind. We'll, we'll decode some of these symbols here with the help of the rest of the Bible in just a second. But at least have that in mind. She can't find him in the city. And there's these watchmen on the wall who are help guarding the city uh, as well, and she asks them, and they're no help, and she moves past those two things and finds her love, her beloved, elsewhere, outside the city. Basically, what's going on is, is that. And then in verse 5, she teaches on the principles of this dream to her single friends. So these daughters of Jerusalem, which come up a few times in the book, are the bride-to-be's single friends, and there's these moments where she turns her head and kind of preaches a bit and says, see what's happening here between myself and, and my love? with our engagement, with our wedding, with our consummation, with communication, whatever it might be. I want you to learn. This is a, by God's grace, uh, could sound arrogant, but it's not. She's just saying, by God's grace, this is happening quite healthily, not perfectly maybe, but quite healthily. And I want you to learn something here and apply it to your singleness as you wait for marriage or long for it or want it. Or maybe you, you don't, but there's still something you can learn there. So we'll talk about that uh, as uh, after we talk more about the first four verses, which is uh, more of more of this divine side. Uh, but, but unlike last week, this is, as you've seen here, in this, if you were here last week, the contrast, unlike last week, this is not him bounding over mountains to be with her. It's her looking for him. And, and the differences are subtle. Uh, they're complementary. They're not contradictory, just to be clear. The differences, though, are important and will affect uh, what other parts of Scripture we look to and glean from to help us understand what's being symbolically, poetic, poetically portrayed here in the, the Song of Solomon, in her dream. So we'll start with that uh, divine side. Remember the divine and human side here. There's, what does this say about God's love for his people? The human side is what are the principles of marriage or relationships in general? 
Uh, today we'll talk about sex a little bit later or uh, how the Bible encourages against uh, premarital sex that'll come up. That's basically what she's saying in verse 5. We'll get to the human side here in a bit because it's built on this greater theological uh, narrative and story that's being portrayed. Just in a few verses, in four verses, we basically get uh, Solomon saying, and he's not probably aware fully of this, but God is helping inspire this. He's just saying, this is how the Old and New Testament hang together. And so if you're here today and you've never really read the Bible before, if you've wondered, how do the Old and New Testament really connect? Why are there two testaments or covenants in the Bible? And how does the one prepare the way for the latter? Which ones should we really focus on? How should Christians read the Old Testament? How should that actually, I should stop posing questions here. I'm not going to answer all those. I'm going to just stop. Uh, but those kinds of questions anyway, we'll uh, talk about some versions of those as they come up here uh, through song. 3, 1 to 5. And so it's a great, actually, a sermon in one sense, though it's heavy. We'll take a long, scenic, windy road to get there, but we will um, come at that stuff, those kinds of things, from the vantage point of song, of song 3. So the divine side, then, of this is really what we're seeing symbolically portrayed here, is a glimpse, song 3, 1 to 5, is a glimpse of all of biblical history, all of redemptive history, all that God is doing throughout history through his people and ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ, in a couple of verses. <clears throat> And so the main and most important question, remember, we can ask interpretively when we're really confronted with a very cryptic, how in the world's going on here passage, uh, like all of the Song of Solomon, but especially a dream within the Song of Solomon like this, is where else do we see this principle take place in the Bible? Of seeking, not finding, but then finding a little bit later, especially as we approach this in a divinely, uh, you know, uh, portrayed kind of way where the woman is like God's people and the man is like God. So then we actually re rephrase it as, where else do we see the principle of God's people seeking for him, not, not finding him, at least fully, but then later finding him? And when we do that, we realize this passage is really a picture, like I said before, of all of Old Testament leading up to New Testament history just in a couple poetic verses. So from movement from the old, not really kind of finding God in the Old Testament, speaking from Israel's vantage point and the world watching what God is doing among that people and that nation, moving from that to a much more clearer depiction of, oh, this is the much more, this is the much more clear way that we access God. This is what he was doing. This is how that set the stage for this, basically. So kind of finding him here, but not really finding him here. So going back to Song 3, not really finding him in the city, but finding him later outside of the city. Big theme. I've actually already seen this play out a couple of ways in chapters 1 and 2 by looking at contrast. So a lot of positive imagery of, of uh, this relationship that's, that's being portrayed. Contrast to where it says elsewhere in the Bible, this is not possible because of our sin. And so we read in Song, Song, Song of Solomon, well, how is this possible? The answer is through Christ. And so we've seen a lot of con Old Testament contrast, kind of that back dark ground, back, back uh, drop, dark backdrop, uh, to the bright foreground of uh, Christ and, and His grace. This is just another way we're doing that here uh, to today. But to help us with this, let me just define a couple of key terms here, so we get what's being painted here, uh, the the portrait being painted here of these matters. Uh, key terms again. Talked about a couple of these already, a, a lot in the series. But the woman is representative of God's people, similar to how Old Testament Israel and New, the New Testament church are called the bride of God or the bride of Christ many places elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, the man or Solomon here, uh, King Solomon, is a picture of God, more particularly Jesus Christ, and we'll get to that. The city itself and the watchmen refer to Jerusalem, different aspects of the city Jerusalem. So she's not just walking around any old city here, but in her context, the city of cities, which is Jerusalem, and it's where Solomon would be, or she, where she thinks that he would be. And this is a really important, this third thing here, the city and watchmen, as well as the fourth, which is flowing from the third, a really important thing to understand, which you may not be yet about the, the Bible, but when Jerusalem is talked about, especially in the New Testament, it is representative of the Old Testament, the whole of it, in a lot of ways. So Jerusalem was the capital of uh, the southern kingdom, Judah, which was before that a more united kingdom, which is the capital of the whole thing. Uh, but it's, so it's the city, it's where the temple was, where God especially met with his people, it was a city of kings, all these things. But it's representative of the whole of the Old Testament. So in other words, and for example, 
in Galatians 4, which is a part of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul who wrote it, talks about how present-day Jerusalem, so in the first century in his context, corresponds to Mount Sinai, which is the mount where God met with Moses and gave the law to Israel. It also corresponds to the temple and the law, the Ten Commandments as a whole, and more laws as well that God sort of piled on for the people to keep and things to abstain from to kind of mediate that covenant between himself and them. And really, as I say here again, the whole Old Testament system. So the verse I'm paraphrasing here is Galatians 4.25. He has a whole argument there that we're not going to go into for the sake of time, but just an example to see how other parts in the Bible, when they say Jerusalem, they were, it, it's symbolic or metaphorical in a sense for the whole of the Old Covenant system, what Paul is doing. So we're going to apply that here today as well and say this is the city of cities, it's Jerusalem, and it's referential to the Old Covenant or Old Testament, the way that God was mediating himself kind of between sinners uh, in the old way with law being in between them. So if that's the case, or with these pieces in place then, let me just back up here and summarize this. If this is going on, then poetically, back in Song 3, 1 to 5, this is a portrayal in in four to five verses here of God's old covenant or Old Old Testament people not finding God fully, or you could say, not finding the fulfillment of God's promises, which was Christ, in the Old Testament system itself for a time, but then later finding them or the fulfillment of his promises in Christ later when the New Testament came. Basically what's going on. So, so to say that this woman's walking through the city, i.e. Jerusalem, i.e. amongst laws and precepts and stipulations and all that the Old Testament kind of symbolized or was. That's really what it was. When you see covenants, think God covenanting with people and saying a covenant is, is basically a written form of stipulations that mediate a relationship. So the old system was do this and don't do this. Uh, if, if, you, if you keep them, you will bring about blessing on yourself. If you don't, you'll bring about judgment and exile and separation from me. That was the old system. And it's among that that this woman's walking around and saying, again poetically, I'm not ultimately finding God there in that system but later on, as I move on to something aside from it. So the, the question of the watchman on the wall then, uh, of have you, to, to the watchman on the wall, this woman's walking through the city in verse 3 and saying, have you seen him whom my soul loves in the city, saying this, is representative of Israel and the world really watching, the world's longing for the time of salvation to truly come, but it didn't for a time, at least not fully in Old Testament times. And there are many ways that uh, this all played out, by the way, and if you're newer to the scriptures, uh, this, this is, um, we could spend all day on this. Many ways this longing for the time of salvation, seeking for the time of salvation, like the woman seeking her beloved in the poem, played out in the Old Testament, whether it be uh, the directly prophetic here, like a new dawn is coming, they would say, and directly predicting uh, this arrival of the Christ, the Messiah, who would right all wrongs and wash away sin and bring people back to God. Or secondly, Israel's biggest heroes failing, uh, like David, who was the greatest of Israel's kings, but who was also a murderer and an adulterer, which, if you think about that, constantly would have driven the story forward. If you're in that day, and this should be the case, by the way, for us when we read the Bible, is when you come to these places where you see huge manifestations of God's grace, but also see those same people being deep, deep sinners at the same time. These would have been moments for Israel to say, God has really been good, he's shown grace, but this can't be it as well because he's imperfect, he's not living, he's dead, he's in the ground, there's his tomb, or he's just a sinner, he's let us down, he's left God, he's murdered someone, he's committed adultery, he's abandoned God. So to have both those things constantly happening, which always in one way or another happen, Israel's biggest heroes not really being heroes, but being failures, would have driven the story forward, would have made Israel again and the world watching this, and us as we read this even today, keep reading, not not finished the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, which talks about some of these things narratively, David's life, or 1 and 2 Kings, or later in the story when they return from exile, and all of this stuff, if you're familiar with this, we can't stop there because there's there's too much that needs to be fixed still. We're left open-handed to say that there's still something not remedied. There's still, we're, not still where, we're still not where God is. He's not fixing what went wrong back in the Garden of Eden. There's still separation between us. And so the stories then, though image in number two here, 
imaging God's grace in a way to say that God would send another one like David who would be kind of like him, who would be like him in his good ways, but much better, also showed them to be huge, huge failures like us so that they wouldn't be tricked into thinking, ah, he's the one, he's the Savior, he's the Messiah, he's the, fina- he's the final way that God is working in the world to undo all curses and to right all wrongs. So in that sense, longing and seeking there up on top, longing and seeking for the fulfillment of God's promise to undo the curse and undo sin in the world uh, would have taken place. And then third, uh, th- those two are actually really important too, but third is a, the third thing here is the bigger way that we're going to talk a little bit more about, and that is the people's general inability to keep the law, which brought judgment upon them and pointed them to the need for a different type of remedy or mediator. So in all these things then, it would have been clear, like I said before, to Israel as they were looking at their heroes fail, as they were hearing the prophets say, this isn't it, but a new dawn is coming. It's coming on the horizon. And as they were looking at themselves and their community and their families and even their leaders as well, hold this law in place and realize, I cannot keep it. I am a bad person. At my core, I am evil. It's mediating me to God. And God is saying, keep it or else, but I can't. It's putting, us, it's putting me back in prison. And, I, and I'm handcuffed. I'm, behind, I'm ankle cuffed. I'm behind these steel bars. And I cannot get out on my own uh, moral effort it would have driven the story forward to look for something other than law, which is what mediated Israel to God, other than law, other than commandments, other than morality, to save us, namely uh, God himself, which we, which we will get to. Or you could, again, use Song 3 language from today here and say that they saw in part, but not in whole. Or they were not finding God in the Old Testament in the city proper. And figuratively speaking, that is to say, in the Old Testament itself, though the Old Testament could point ahead and point to Jesus and say he's coming, they weren't finding him fully and the full remedy uh, who is Christ there at the same time. And things can do that. And the Bible talks about this, by the way. If you're interested in reading more about this from just a straight-up biblical perspective, read the book of Hebrews in a sitting. And note how the Old Testament, the words used for the Old Testament there, just circle them or make note of them, whatever you want to do. But look how they use words like the Old Testament was a lesser testament or a lesser covenant. How, it was, how the New Testament was better than it. And how the former one was weak and, and, and could not, it wasn't possible to take sin away and to do all that God was intending because it was built on people's inability to keep the law. So, so if, you're, if our relationship, our, the covenant God has with people is built on us and our ability to do good and our ability to not do evil, uh, this is kind of what's going on, and, and this is a, we should look at this as kind of a, a depiction under a magnifying glass, you know, of, oh, that's me. This, the point here is, oh, it's just Israel. It's the world. Israel is a, a theater, in a sense, of the, the, the conscience of the world, you could say, and we're all there with them, unable to keep law, unable to do good, it's sufficient good, anyway, before the Lord. And so the Old Testament wasn't perfect, it was lesser, and built on weaker promises because it was built on people's inability uh, to keep the law. So then the, the New Testament spin on this then, and we'll just, these are some great summative statements here in the New Testament letters. They talk about these types of things in a more prepositional way. In Romans 3, 20 to 24, uh, this again is the Apostle Paul speaking. He says, For by works of the law, by doing good, by keeping the commandments, no human being, not some, no human being will be justified or made perfect in his sight, in God's sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And here's the big contrast. But now the righteousness of God, or just think saving work of God, has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or made right before him by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So there's a lot to talk about here, which we're not all going to today, but the big thing I want you to see is the two different ways that the law, the word law is used here in verse 21. So it says, but now the saving work of God 
in the world has been manifest that are made known apart from law, although the law and the prophets witness to it. So apart from commandments, apart from morality, apart from doing good, God has said, I'm saving the world. It's not in this anymore. This first covenant, which was a failure, which couldn't produce, which couldn't make anything right or holy, which couldn't undo the curse in any manner, is being replaced or surpassed by a different thing. So apart from that, apart from the Old Testament system, apart from law, God is saying, this is how I'm saving the world, through my son, through grace, through a gift, through redemption, which is in my son, in Christ Jesus. But then it says, although the law and the prophets bear witness. So look at the the next law is capitalized because law and the prophets is an idiom for all the Old Testament. But the law and the prophets could point to, and all the ways talked about before, could point ahead to Jesus, but salvation wasn't found in them at the same time. You guys see that? So kind of a a nuanced thing there. And, And similar to how the woman here in Song 3 is going about her business of looking for her beloved. She's going through the city, kind of through the Old Testament, you could say, but not finding him there, even though he, she probably saw fingerprints of Solomon all over the place. He was king. He built, he's the one that built and constructed the temple. Maybe his profile was set up in some places, or he saw thing, places he walked with her before, or whatever it was. Reminders or pointers to him, but it wasn't until she got outside of the city, outside the Old Testament, outside the law, apart from that way of being mediated to God, that he, she found him. And that, and that Israel ultimately, and the world ultimately found God was in Christ. Though Christ was prophesied, it wasn't until we got to this New Testament era that we ultimately found the, the righteousness of God or the saving work of the Lord. Galatians 3 here as well uh, gets the same idea, other New Testament book. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified, or again, made perfect or washed from our sins by faith. So stark, you see the law-faith contrast here. When the Bible talks about living by law and living by faith, it's not doing this, kind of blending it together and in this big, mushy puddle of jello and saying, that's what the case is in both Testaments. It's saying, no, it's moving from a place of doing law, but realizing I can't keep it, and therefore living by faith and trusting in God, looking ahead to Christ, to this New Testament era where now faith has fully come in this new era of God does everything. There's no more, we're not under law anymore. There's no more do's and don'ts in the strictest sense of the word uh, unless, or, uh, or aside from, believe and trust, have faith in God that this is the, the story, this is actually the story of stories, the narrative of narratives and this is how God is revealing himself progressively to the world, which climaxes in his son. So, again, going back to Song 3 a little bit here, but also speaking to the Old Testament storyline as it leads to the new, part of this longing and searching and waiting that we see as a part of the story has to do with God's predetermined timeline, which includes a time of preparation, a time of waiting, before the time of salvific consummation, which you can use as a phrase to refer to Christ. But part of it has to do with the whole failure of the Old Testament system to deliver, as we just have been talking about. So going back to Song 3 then, the, the, the woman saying, I can't find my Solomon, I can't find my beloved, I can't find my love in the city, is a poetic nod to the idea that God's ultimate promise was delivered apart from law. Apart from law. Or... A full reuniting with God, the ultimate beloved, the ultimate Solomon, was not possible in the city, though we had to go through the city uh, to find him. So really what this passage then is about, if you really want to step back and you know, follow that, it's like, what in the world? The poetry is easy, but what you just said is like worse. Uh, if that's the case, at least get, get the step back, step back and just say, this passage is at least about a man and a woman reuniting after a period of separation and finding happiness and joy in that, which is really a picture of, of the gospel. I mentioned Aletha, Aletha's in my story about just finding a lot of joy in that. I mean, if you're, you can have this if you're married, like one of you might be going away for work for three months and you call your spouse a bit, but you're not together and you long to be back with that person and you're reunited. It's part of our stories as well. We have this play out or you're dating and you hate saying goodbye every night. You're longing to be married so you can just like 
be together and not say goodbye as much because they hate saying goodbye. It's why I not say goodbye anymore. This is part of our story. This is the gospel story as well. You are not where God is. You are distant from him. You are separated from him and you, like myself, we're all hell-bound to be separated from him eternally until he intervenes with his son and deals with that issue and bring, brings us back. So song three then is this prophetic, poetic metaphor. It's this symbolic portrayal of God is going to do something in the world where his people will be like a bride to him. And, and he'll be like this perfect bridegroom who will bound over the mountains, will be found by him finally, not in the city but outside, and will be wedded to him forever. And it, and we'll never, ever, ever be divorced from him. We'll never, ever, ever be separated again from him because he'll live inside. All these good gospel truths that we take, can take if you're a Christian for granted. Maybe not if you're just if you're not, I guess, but if you're not a Christian yet, this is what the gospel is. Jesus takes away separation between us and God, and he alone can do that because he died in our place for our sins. So a Christian says, again, that's my story. That's God's story. I believe that's the story, and I'm putting all my eggs in the basket of that, of that storyline. That's basically what a Christian does by faith. So at least have that in mind. A man and a woman reuniting after a period of separation, but hear through all we're doing here that it's more than that. It's about the fact that reuniting with God did not happen in the city proper. It happened by God himself doing something different later in, in history. And that may seem like, as you're reading this poem, for some of you it might seem like a very passing poetic detail that just doesn't really matter. But to suggest, even poetically and theologically, that love is found not in the city. This is where love is found, the Bible is saying. It's not in the city, i.e., not in Jerusalem, i.e., not by law, not by the written code, not by you performing before God. It's not where love is ultimately found. Those, those things can point ahead and make you yearn for greener pastures, salvifically. They, it's not where love is found. It's found in Jesus alone and in his death on a cross for our sins, the essence of the new covenant. So they can and should point us ahead to our Savior. And, and as we ask those questions about, well, if this is true, shouldn't we see some song three language used in the New Testament to refer to these types of things? And we kind of already have looked at that with Romans 3 and Galatians 3. But look what else we see in Hebrews 13 and John 19. In direct reference to the, to the cross, the crucifixion of our God. So Jesus also suffered outside the gates, outside the city, in order to sanctify the people through his blood. In John 19, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, but not in the city. You see how important this is? For the, this might seem like a passing, poetic, narrative, not important detail. For the Bible, crucial. The fact that Jesus died outside the city out, apart, means apart from law we're saved. It wasn't in the city. It was outside, new era, different stipulations, new covenants based on his grace and what he does for you, not on you performing, not on you doing. It's simply by faith. When faith came, the locale of where he died theologically is super significant for the Bible. You might not think that, but it is. And Song 3 is a nod to this idea that gets more explicit here in Hebrews 13 and John 19. So in other words, we're saved by God's grace not by works of the law. This is what Song 3 is about, like everything else in the Bible. We are saved by God's grace, not in the city, outside the city, by God's grace, not as it pertains to law, but to Christ. That's what this is getting at. This is what the God of the Bible wants us to pound into our mind because we're so forgetful and we just don't know this. We're not born into knowing this. We're born into this. If I do enough good, God will look favorably on me. If I do enough good, he'll save me. We, we only get over here to this New Testament idea unless someone tells us, or if someone tells us, that that didn't work. Failed mediator. Your morality and mine, failed mediator. Impotent to save. But over here in the New Testament, God is not impotent. God is quite strong. He's forever strong. He's able to actually remove your sin to a degree that you will never be separated from him ever, ever again. Even in, uh, it's interesting, in, in verse 4 in today's passage, when the woman says, I brought him after I found him into my mother's house or the chamber of, her, of the one who conceived me. There's a lot of you know, poetic jargon 
going on there. But just understand, kind of get back, step back and get the big picture. Where is this place? Where is her, mother, her mother's house is her house, right? So, so what she's saying is, when I found my beloved, when, when I found Solomon, I brought him into my house. And again, as we think, apply these theological symbols to the story and think, well, what is that telling us? Or what is it not telling us? What doesn't happen? She doesn't find him and he doesn't say, or she doesn't bring him back into the city to hang out and to just kind of kick it on the lawn chairs with the watchman on the wall, right? She, she takes him back to, to her house, different location, not in the city. So you guys, what this is saying is, and this is a common evangelical misunderstanding about what the gospel is, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is God dying for humankind. We're washed from our sins when we believe it, but then it's all about us living a good life after that as best, as best of our ability. It's, it's, it's about going back to the law and keeping the Ten Commandments well, which is not the gospel. And that's certainly not being portrayed here in Song 3 because they don't go back to the city. They don't go back to the place of law. They don't go back to Jerusalem, which is, remember, biblically speaking, a picture of the Old Testament. They go to her house, which is another this figurative nod to Christ sets up camp in your hearts. He goes to where you are. He meets you on the curb. When all of us are lying there, to borrow from another prophetic picture of where we're just where we are in our sins, we're lying there in a pool of blood. We're harlots. It didn't work out for us. We've been beaten by, by our former lovers. And we're lying there, even though we're married to this God who's our husband, and he stays faithful to us. And he comes and finds us there, and he brings us into his house. See, that's the gospel, you guys. It's not Jesus plus law. It's not the, the gelatin, the jello of God saves you, but you know, also got, got to live a little bit, kind of a good life here to save, save yourself. That's Mormonism. That's pick your religion or pick your pseudo-Christian cult. That's Jehovah's Witnesses. That's you know, really liberal Christianity. But that's not biblical Christianity. Uh, Christianity the gospel says he, he, God washes us in the cross and he also gives us his presence in the, the homes of our heart. And doesn't, doesn't bring us back to the city, he brings us back, he brings us into his place of dwelling. He comes to set up camp in our hearts and prompts us then to love and good deeds, but nothing we can boast about because he alone has them to give it. So the fact that they don't go back to the city, really crucial poetic piece here to see as well. So, but in all these things, he suffers outside the gate and he lives with us outside the gate. We move on from law to just relationship with our Savior, so that we can affirm it's entirely by grace, not by what we do that saves us. Praise be to God. Okay, uh, really going to switch gears here now, uh, but also come back to how this relates to what I'm about to say here in a second. But this is all, remember, the divine side, what's being portrayed about the Testaments, how they hang together, the love of God, where it's found, you know, and that's a, that's a huge piece here to you guys, is where are you looking for God? Are, are you looking to yourself, to what you do, your morality, your own hearts? Or are you looking to the cross? Are you looking to Golgotha, the place of the skull? Are you looking to Calvary, which occurred outside the city? And this, this should actually uh, encourage, but also scare you. God is everywhere, but there are places you will not find him. And there are places that, are, that kind of refer to him, that are kind of Jesus-y, that kind of might look like, yeah, he's kind of here, that actually uh, aren't where he is. So in other words, the city in, in Song 3. Uh, you're not going to find him in your moral effort. He is not there. You will not find God by performing for him. You'll not find God by praying a lot. You'll only find God here. As you look 2,000 years ago and say, God had to come into the world to die for me because I couldn't get to him. That's how bad my sin was. And so we find him there, dying on a cross, a bloody one, in a shameful manner among criminals outside the city, and we say, there he is. That's, that's my Savior. So, again, this is all this divine side. Where are we looking for him? We have to give ourselves a heart check and a gut check here. No matter how long you've been a Christian, where am I really looking for God? Am I looking to the cross or somewhere else? Uh, there's, there's only one place, truly, uh, to find our love and to find his love expressed to us on a cross outside the city. All right, on the human side, however, I think this is a call. I'm going to re-word re or rephrase, sorry, reread um, 
verse 5 here as well to catch up to speed, but the human side is a call, a related call, to incorporate waiting and engagements into our relationships, specifically budding marital relationships. So verse 5 again says, and this is the woman speaking to her single friends, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Essentially what this is saying is don't have sex before you get married. Wait to consummate. Wait for the story to play out uh, in, in a healthy manner. And part of that story is having even a brief time of engagement, committal, but engagement before you, uh, before you sleep together. And so you might be saying, well, and this, this, uh, this is the thing. This actually relates to what we've been talking about. So you might think, how in the world is all this city law leading to Christ imagery, all that we said before about the divine side of the coin relate to not having sex before marriage? Like, what? Am I in the same, you know, it's the same sermon? But it actually is. So related to, to all that we talked about are, is this theme of the importance of engagement in marriage and relatedly waiting, waiting for sex. And remember, the answer to this is, as we approach it this way, there are spiritual and physical sides to waiting uh, that's come up already in our series a little bit. Waiting is a good thing biblically. God just says that. It's hard to do, but he says the people of God are good waiters. They, they wait well. They're patient because they know that they can do nothing to bring themselves to God. They wait until God says, okay, you're okay with me now because of what I've done for you and my son. And so God says a lot in the Bible, wait for me and I will bring my salvation to you. Wait for me, and I will, I will speak it over you and bring it into history. It's not the flip. You know, God's not waiting for us to do good. He's not waiting for us to show ourselves powerful or mighty. We wait for him to be amazing for us. So waiting is, a, and generally speaking, but also as it pertains to salvation, is a really good thing, very difficult, but a very good thing uh, to do. It's why Christians are called to be patient, you could say, um, in the scriptures, fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives and, and different things like that. But the question of, okay, so why wait to awaken love? Why wait to have sex until marriage? Some of you guys are engaged or you will be someday um, or you know some people who are, you're asked for counsel potentially on this or whatever the case would be, this is important to understand. You know, we could look at a lot of things today. We could look at statistics of, you know, the cons to cohabitation or talk about the positive side to delayed gratification, which if you look at stats, uh, there, there's stats on both sides. People like to use statistics to argue for their perspective, and it's just like, well, what's what I believe? So statistics are like, well, they are actually pretty powerful, but then they can also be, um, you know, not not enough of that impetus to ch to kind of change our life and everything like that. So, but we could we could do that, or we could just talk about how the Bible strictly forbids premarital sex elsewhere. Uh, or, you know, talk about experience. It's, it's very uncommon for, uh, this might be some of your experiences or um, just heard of these friends who've gone through this as well, but if you've had sex before marriage, it's very uncommon for someone to say after they're married, I'm really, really, really glad that I had sex before marriage. Like, I'm really glad my story unfolded that way. It's usually the other way around where people say, I really wish I would have waited, had a second chance at this, or uh, could have done it a different way. Uh, it's much more common. There are probably some exceptions out there, but vast majority that uh, Leith and I hear, you know, in counseling or just people that we know is um, that uh, I, I really wish I would have done this uh, differently. Or, you know, a spouse who marries someone who's had sex with a different person before they found their true love. You know, that person's never going to say, man, I'm really glad you did that. You know, it's just that so we can argue from experience and say, well, why is that the case? You know, why, why is it so difficult to have, you know, this type of this type of narrative play out before we are wedded and have sex with our uh, eventual spouses. And those are all good things, and we're not going to go into all those today, uh, stats, Bible, experience, uh, because I want to build off more of what we just talked about with this greater storyline of the Bible and how that should be superimposed, essentially, or related to uh, our own storylines as we meet people and wait uh, to, to have sex. And so the thing is this, and if you're here today and you're not a Christian yet, really glad you're here. Uh, I just want to be clear that uh, this is something that I'm going to say that probably won't, hopefully it makes sense to you and you can collect, connect some theological dots and understand the biblical logic behind it, but because it's not a value of yours yet, it probably is going to just sound really silly. Uh, but if you're a Christian, I'm hoping, or kind of in the process of becoming one, I'm hoping that this is either a motivation for you to not have sex before marriage or you know, maybe to confess that if you did. 
as sin and wrong, or just to help people who are in the, the throes of it and just, you know, really wrestling with that in and through uh, their engagement. But the principle is this. So we can look at all those three things there, but this is the most important one, I think, that I've found is really more motivating, more of a paradigm shift for people to understand, and that is this. It's simple but profound. Marriage is not about you. Marriage is not about you, it's about God. So you and I don't, and just culture in general, cannot define marriage how we want because God says this is what it is and it's in place in a certain manner and it exists and relationships develop in a certain way to tell my story. So marriage is about him and it tells his narrative. So and we've talked about that a lot in this series already, but not so much as it pertains to waiting, but God is like a bridegroom who woos his lost but separated from him bride to himself through his son. And as we've seen today, that story includes a time of promise and committal, but waiting for that promise to consummate. That's like the Old Testament right there. It's promise and committal saying, I'm going to undo this curse. I'm going to wed myself to you. But there's this time of waiting and engagement before the consummation of salvation occurs later in the story. You could say in reference to Christ as the consummative act of God in the world uh, to save people from their sins. That's the biblical storyline. And the Bible also says that storyline is also yours in marriage. I'm creating marriage to portray this whole, the whole gamut of relational you know, attraction to promise, to engagement, to committal, to consummation and sex and to married life together. All of that I want to be an imperfect but intentional pointer to this greater biblical story uh, that also includes uh, waiting as well. So again, like a man would propose marriage to a woman, promising himself to her, but waiting to consummate sexually until vows can be spoken in front of God and witnesses, that's basically the same story as the Bible. It's just, it's just an imperfect, uh, shadowy, uh, but still intentional portrayal uh, of God's love for, for his people. So engagement and waiting then, the timeline's not really important. It can be three days or 300 days or 3,000, I guess, though I don't recommend that. Keep, keep engagement short uh, as much as you can. That's, anyway, that's all I'll say about that. But it's important because of how it ties together, this, again, these two storylines. So much, so much so that to toss around sex to whomever, whenever we want, is to help tell a different story with our actions. We don't think about this. We don't think, well, there's the biblical story, but you know, if I'm not intentionally speaking about that story, then I'm not telling it with my actions. The Bible says, wrong, wrong. You might not think that you're telling a story with how you love your husband or your wife uh, or how you go about dating, how you go about waiting or not waiting, but you are. It's impossible to not tell a story about God with your relationship. It's especially important for the church to understand this, but even if you're not saved yet or not a Christian yet, this is still important to glean this and to understand because when we see broken relationships, we're seeing the anti-picture of what God is really like. We're seeing a healthy relationship. We're seeing the picture of what, of what God is like. And again, part of that includes... <clears throat> includes waiting. But again, this is so much true that if, we, if we're cavalier with sex and, and don't wait, whether it's you know, someone we don't marry eventually or someone we do marry eventually, uh, uh, it tells a different story. And three things here. On one level, it, it can, in certain circumstances especially, portray divine unfaithfulness. You know, so after we move on from whomever we're sleeping with, it can portray a God who's very flippant and very careless with dispensing his salvation to people. If sex is a picture of God becoming one flesh with us, and it is biblically, then if we're cavalier with sex, and if, if it happens outside the context of committal, then it portrays the, the anti-gospel, that God is not faithful, he will divorce, he's flippant with love, and we can't be sure that it will last forever, even though we get it once initially. Um, maybe just in, in, in the beginning of our uh, conversion experience. Secondly, it can portray love as selfish, as raw emotionalism, rather than what the Bible says, other, uh, other-centered, ordered commitment. And, and so, uh, you know, sex, it depends how cavalier it is, but it, it, whatever the case, if it's extramarital or if it's, if it's premarital, even if you marry the person, what it portrays about God is, is hastiness, or love is really more about us and getting satisfaction than it is about the other person and serving the person in the context of uh, the, the sexual environment. So, and furthermore, the, the third thing here is, and this is kind of what this is getting at here, uh, because waiting for sex is so closely related to waiting for God's salvation, 
Just have that you know, paradigm in mind. Waiting for sex is like waiting for God's salvation. To not wait for sex is to not wait for God for salvation, which is then to signify with our actions that we believe we're saved not by God's grace, not by waiting for him to dispense love to us, but by working it out ourselves, but by works. It reflects this fact that we think we're saved in, not by his timing, but, but ours. It is to say, God, I'm sick of waiting for you. I'm going to handle this in, in my own way. You see, and actually, a really cool picture of this in the Old Testament where Abraham, remember, had uh, two sons, the first Hebrew who, through whom came the Christ, and God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless the world and undo the curse through, one, through your son. And Abraham says, well, I'm 90 years old, and my wife's 90, she's barren, uh, Time's a ticking, God, and he waits a while to do this. And, and, and so he says, well, I'm going to bring this into my own hands, takes it into my own hands. I'm going to have sex with my wife's servant, Hagar, and that can be the son through whom, God, you bless the world. So he does that. They have a son named Hagar, or named Ishmael. And Abraham says to God, if you remember the story, God, look what I've done for you. See, now you can, now you can really work in the world because now I've made a son for you to, to work through. And God says, no. I said, I'm going to bring about a miracle, a child of promise. I'm going to make your barren 99-year-old wife conceive so that you can't take credit. And I'm going to do it in my time. You see, so it's interesting that this is a, this is a sex story as well. It's not just a story of you know, promise and works or grace and law between the two sons represented there, which Paul talks about in Galatians 4, by the way. Again, different thing there. But it's a story of sex. And so what, what, what premarital kind of hasty non-committal sex can do is be a, we, and we're not thinking this when we do this, but what, what's at the core at our heart is saying to ourselves, preaching to the person we're sleeping with and people that know the relationship, is we're saying that you can save yourselves. Just have sex when you want. You can consummate whenever you want. It doesn't matter. You can be married in your hearts. Just kind of like, just kind of check off that committal box in your mind. And what, what that is picturing is you save, God doesn't. So God saves by grace, not by works, is behind the whole redemptive storyline and your relationship storylines. And this is why it's important to wait, because God did. He had a time of engagement, so we need to as well. And to twist that, to mess with it, is to communicate wrong things about God's love and about our place in that, like our, how, how we come into that and, our, and, and participate, which in the New Testament ways to say no, nothing. You know, we're, we're like a marriage that waits a long time to have sex and and are engaged for a while, we wait for God to set that whole thing up through a wedding and God and witnesses and committal and legal things and all of that, and then we consummate. In a, in a related sense, God gives grace. We don't, work, we don't work for it. A couple of things here, although additional things. We'll talk about this more in the coming weeks when sex becomes more of a topical thing. But the beauty uh, on the human side of the matter is that when we wait, uh, sex is just better. And, and, you know, sex in the context of trust and commitment and total emotional openness is so much better than the alternative. So we can say that sex in the context of, I have to perform here or he or she might leave is just a cheap imitation. It's just stupid. <laughs> if that's what you're really looking for, you're, you're, this is like, you know, a picture of the Grand Canyon. And, you know, God is just saying, no, go to the Grand Canyon. And look over the edge. This is a cheap imitation of, of the real thing. It's fear-based rather than trust and love-based. And um, it's not, so not only does God want this to help tell his story, he wants it for our benefit. And so it, we shouldn't be a surprise then it, when, when sex done the right way and the right timing gives us a little bit more joy and is a little bit more safe and is a little bit more God-glorifying and just happiness-giving. So He's wired us then, just to connect the dots one more time here. This is how God has set up the world. He's wired us to wait for his salvation, and he's wired us to wait for sex. It's not a random command. It's for a benefit that it occurs this way, and it's for the sake of telling his story that we do this. And again, if we mess with this too much, you guys, we think that we're not doing, we're, hey, we're just loving each other. We're just having sex here. We're, I think we're going to get married. It's not that big a deal. It is. Because one, the Bible forbids it, but two, it messes with his story. Tell, it can, especially in extreme forms, it can tell uh, the wrong things about him and the wrong things about his love, the wrong things about how we're saved. Uh, and we don't think that when we're doing that because we're too self-absorbed. Got to get outside ourselves and say, what, what am I really trying to say here? 
with um, how our relationship uh, progresses. And then uh, one last thing too, if you have had sex before marriage, if you're here, you're dating or engaged, you're having sex currently, just to be clear, this is not the unforgivable sin. We, we as Christians like to do that sometimes. You label things as, oh, these two things, God's blood is sufficient, but not for these two things. This is not, there's nothing on that list. And so if you have done that, just confess that to God. Or if you're engaged and on your way to marriage, having sex, cohabiting, just um, stop it <laughs> for now. And have a period of two months, three months, six months, where you're not doing that, where you have, you can tell this story uh, afresh, where, you know, God promises deliverance, but there's this time of waiting until it comes. Delayed gratification is, is better. And I know I speak for Spencer, too, the other pastor here and the other elders. When we're asked to officiate weddings, we just ask that. If people are having sex, we just say, we ask that you stop. And uh, it's par- part, of the, part of the thing, because, because one, the Bible talks about this, but two, you know, we don't want to sign our name onto uh, an anti-gospel story. You know, we're, we're part of getting behind a wedding, and, and we think the Bible speaks to this, but it's also saying we're gospel people, and we want the, the, the spirit of saved by grace, not by works, to be not just talked about at your wedding day, but alive in how you talk to each other about Jesus and how you uh, physically relate to one another now in engagement and on your wedding night when you consummate and throughout your life uh, in your sex life together. So if you have had sex, again, just confess that. God loves you deeply. Come to him, confess that it was wrong and that it reflected a deeper issue in your heart of disbelief and distrust in God and a desire to be your own functional savior, which we all do. This is just one aspect, one area that comes out for all of us uh, in other ways. If this, isn't our, if this isn't your issue, it's something else. We're always trying to save ourselves. Premarital sex, extramarital sex is another way to say, I save myself. And I do this on my time when I want. And um, I don't want to wait for God. I just want to make my own way here, which is the core issue of sin. All right, a conclusion here. What, what is this all telling us to do then? Uh, just to go back and summarize, just two things. I think if I had to put an umbrella over all of it, uh, I encourage you guys, wherever you are with the Bible, is to read your Bible as a story. If you open Song of Solomon or some other random passage and read it, like it's just speaking to one particular aspect of history. It's not related to the rest of the Bible. You'll never get this stuff out of it, like we talked about today. You'll, ne- you'll never get to Jesus. You'll never get to grace. You'll never understand God properly. So read your Bible as a story because it is. And as you do this, you will, one, look for salvation apart from law, outside the city where Christ was crucified. Believe the gospel. Cling to Jesus for dear life like the woman did to uh, her man in Song 3. And you can then affirm, like Romans 8 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Not you or the strongest of demons or death itself because you are clinging now to your Savior. And if you think you found him, you found the fact that he's found you. And God says, I'm a perfect husband. I'm never going to divorce you. I'm faithful. I save you, not based on what you've done, Old Testament stuff, but based on what I've done for you, New Covenant stuff, the better covenant, the one always meant to replace and surpass and be better than the first one. So believe in Jesus, cling to him for dear life like the woman is here, and rest in the fact that his love is, is everlasting and that he's in your house now. He's not taking you back to this city to work your fingers to the bone to make him happy. Worship him. Rest in his grace. Love him. Reciprocate the love that he shows to you. That's what it means to be Christian. Don't blend the gospel with law. When you do that, you instantly become unchristian. Instantly. Is Jesus enough or is he half enough? And is the law the other half of the, of the story? Where are you looking for him is the question again. In the city or outside the city, to use Song 3 language. And then secondly, uh, as you read the, the Bible as story, by God's grace, we will more and more do this. Uh, it will help uh, tell the story, not just with our words, which are most important, but also with our actions by being a more patient person, generally, who waits for God all the time and is okay with God saying no to prayers or saying wait to prayers. And one who waits until marriage to have sex uh, with your spouse. Uh, so, you know, as we read the Bible this way, we'll preach about the grace of God saving us from our sins through his son, Jesus Christ, and we'll also want to live as though salvation is given and not worked for. Both are crucial. Though the one is more important, both are crucial. So let me pray for us. 
God, thank you for your grace in the gospel. Uh, thank you for your love, for dying for our sins, uh, for giving us yet another, even though it's a poetic nod, uh, enigmatic one, a figurative one, for time and time again telling us and showing us that salvation is found in Christ alone and not in our works. Saved by grace, not by works, so that none may boast, Ephesians 2 says. Thank you for that, uh, that mantra that is constantly beat over our heads in a good way because we're so forgetful beat over our heads, beat into our minds because we're so prone to want to add things to Jesus. Jesus plus. Jesus plus this. Jesus plus that. God, forgive us. Uh, You are not found inside the city. You are found outside on a bloody cross. That is where we meet God, period. There is no other way to be saved than God dying for our sins. Thank you the scriptures timelessly and tirelessly uh, teach this to us and help us to leave here more grounded in your love, more encouraged, and laying down our moral efforts for the sake of clinging to your effort for us on the cross. Because good things do not turn your head. Uh, only, only faith and trust in you for what you've done for us. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond together.